and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Daniel Lombroso is an independent filmmaker, but as a former video journalist for The Atlantic, he most recently produced the documentary White Noise, which premiered in October and is streaming now on Amazon and Apple TV. To make the film, he spent four years with three well-known leaders of white supremacist anti-Semitic movements. He's with us now to discuss how those four years inform his views on what we saw unfold last week at the Capitol and the fallout since. Daniel, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the very kind introduction. Well, let's rewind five years before the 2016 election. You had just joined the staff of The Atlantic as a video journalist. What were you assigned to cover? So I wasn't assigned the topic. I was out in front of it, and and part of it was being young. You know, I was a couple years out of school. I was lurking in weird corners of the Internet. At the time, you know, right now, obviously, is a household name. It's in the zeitgeist. Many of the figures in my film, especially Richard Spencer, are essentially household names. He's synonymous with David Duke at this point. If you go back to 2016, when I started covering the movement, these groups are not getting a lot of attention, and they really organized and mobilized online. So as someone who was younger, who was looking for that next story, I was lurking on Reddit. I was looking at different chat forums. I even you know, peeped into 4chan, which no one should do without <laughs> preparations. And pretty quickly, I realized that There was just an immense amount of energy behind candidate Trump, much more than the other 16 Republicans that were that were on the debate stage and that he was humiliating, you know, each night. So I brought it to my editors and said, hey, guys, are you paying attention to this? And they said, you know, they said things that everyone was noticing that, yeah, I'm noticing some trolling on Twitter. I'm noticing that a lot of our Jewish journalists and our black journalists journalists are getting more hate than they used to. But there wasn't really in understanding that this was Trump's base, that these people were mobilized behind the candidate who they called somewhat jokingly the God Emperor. So I pitched covering the alt-right and it began with a series of short documentaries and articles, one of which was a documentary on Spencer back before he was well known. And when I was doing that documentary, I caught a room full of people breaking out into Nazi salutes. It was a, a really viral video at the time. And I think it really clarified something that needed to be clarified, which is that the alt-right wasn't this fun, edgy kind of conservatism like it had been being described in the press. It was fundamentally a racist movement, a white nationalist movement, an anti-Semitic movement. And then from there, continued to cover the movement. When Charlottesville happened eight months later, we understood that this had to be a deeper investigation. And Jeff Goldberg, the editor-in-chief, gave me the room to pursue a feature-length film. You know, one detail that I found very compelling is that that moment that you caught those Nazi salutes, that was at an event in D.C., And it was after most of the journalists who had been covering that had left, right? I mean, you stayed and saw that happen. Am I recalling that correctly? That is right. So I, I mean, it's two things. One is that I had been talking to Richard for months. So I had negotiated inside access. He, you know, he allowed me to be in the room with him when other people weren't. And, you know, that was the genesis of white noise. White noise is all about how these people exist in private spaces, many of the contradictions that that that, that entails. But then the other thing was, yeah, I just, you know, I was younger, I was eager, I was looking for the story, and I was absolutely horrified by what I was seeing. So I stuck around. I mean, it was three days, probably 16, 18 hour days. And at the end of the third day, Richard gave the speech 
talking about things about how to be white is to be a crusader, to be a conqueror. He said, for us, it is conquer or die. And when I heard words like that, you know, across as a through line across the conference, I understood that I had to stay till the end. So when the night ended, I think it was something like 10 or 11 o'clock. It was just me and a reporter from the New York Times. He filed the written story and, and I published the video and both of which really helped shape the way we understood what the alt-right was all about. Wow. So so talk about negotiating that access. You said you had been spending time with Spencer for months. How did you negotiate access to him and to others that you included in the film? You know, Richard is a little bit easier. It's sort of a cliche that all of these people love press. No press is bad press. That's true to some extent. All of them want to be in control of an interview. So there's a lot of conversation, rightfully so, about platforming. What is the appropriate way to cover them? All of them are happy to give you a quick quote. They love to do combative interviews. So many reporters think the best way to cover them is to do a 60-minute style showdown. In my view, that's the wrong way to cover them. They're so prepared. They're very savvy. They're quick on their feet. And they're going to know how to chop it up for social media and use it to amplify their messages. For me, right away, the goal was to gain unprecedented access inside the movement to understand who they are as individuals, who they are as people, to understand their motivations. And very quickly, I realized to really capture so many contradictions at the core of these individuals. So, you know, Mike Cernovich, he claims to be an alpha male who's teaching other men how to live. I realized that he took most of his money from his first wife in alimony. He's living off of his first wife's money, who is a very successful lawyer in Silicon Valley. You know, he tweets things like diversity is code word for white genocide. His wife is Persian and he has half Persian kids. Lauren Southern, the third character in the film, was next to impossible to get access to. It took eight months of negotiation. And I think eventually she understood that I was sincere in wanting to understand her story. Even if I found it, you know, completely reprehensible and repulsive, I wanted to understand who she was and how someone, you know, my age, she's in her early 20s and I was too at the time, could build such a big and effective movement online and on YouTube and could be, you know, so effectively radicalizing thousands of people. So I think she, I work very small. I typically work alone. I shot most of the film alone or with an assistant, a really great assistant. And I think over time, I just developed real intimacy with these individuals and they came to, to know me and trust me. They would text me at 2 a.m. They'd keep me updated with their lives. Sometimes they would just call me to vent about unrelated things. I would always remind them that I was a reporter. I would always remind them that I'm Jewish. But somehow they came to overlook those after months and months of talking. And that's the beauty of this kind of approach. Instead of, you know, a showdown interview is you can slowly peel back the layers and show people for who they are. And I think the resulting portrait really captures, you know, what an unflattering movement this ultimately is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm curious, you focused on the three leaders, but who did you find embracing this ideology? I mean, are we talking old white guys who drive pick em up trucks with gun racks or is it much broader than that? It's much broader. To give one anecdote, you know, one of the secondary characters in the film is a guy named Lucian Wintrich. He was originally going to be a primary character. And then we found, we, we thought that he was just too much of a provocateur with no agenda. And we played him down for platforming concerns. But he's a really interesting example here. One of his first lines he ever told me is that my parents had the most expensive divorce in the history of Pennsylvania. I don't know if it's true. I haven't fact checked it, but he's from a very wealthy family. His dad is an advertising executive. He went to Bard College, you know, a very liberal school. He lives in the East Village in the film. He was living in Washington, D.C. in DuPont Circle. You know, these are the individuals that this movement attracts. These are the individuals who follow these ideas. That doesn't imply that, you know, the white working class, which has gotten tons of publicity, 
does not believe in these at some gut level. But the leaders and many of the followers, many of the people who are attracted to these ideas and who are being radicalized by them are young, highly educated people, many of them college graduates, college students, who are looking for a sense of purpose in the world and are finding it in just the worst ideas imaginable. And that's the appeal. It's just that, that sense of purpose that they're searching for. Exactly. I mean, it's a community and even I would say a cult like any other. I mean, if you join the alt-right, of course, you're not filling out a form, but you're joining something that feels larger than yourself. So all of a sudden, you're not a bored, potentially unemployed or maybe employed kid who's lost, who doesn't know what to do with his life, who feels like he's wasting away his years. Many people feel that. You know, I felt that at parts of my life. You know, what am I doing? What's the point of this? But if you, you know, you go down to step back a little bit, social media incentivizes the most radical content possible. So if you're sitting at home, you're looking for something to do, you're looking for a sense of purpose. You might say, okay, here, this moderate conservative is interesting. The moderate conservative leads you to someone who's right-wing, leads you to someone who's far-right, and very soon you're ending up with Richard Spencer. And when you get to Richard Spencer, he's telling you this amazing narrative. It's actually really romantic. It makes you feel like you're part of something larger. And he says, you know, you're not just some bored, out-of-work kid who's confused, who girls don't like. You're actually a descendant of a Greek. You're a descendant of a Roman. You're inheriting this amazing heritage of whiteness. Obviously, there's never been a construct of whiteness. It's ideologically incoherent for a million reasons, but it's deeply romantic and makes you feel like you're part of something larger. And that's what I found again and again and again with these people is that they were kind of lost wandering and then they had a sense of being found once they joined this movement. It doesn't excuse what they did in any way, but that's definitely the motivation. It's really an emotional appeal. So at what point, you, you mentioned that you did reveal to each subject that you were Jewish. At what point did you reveal that? And was that a nerve-wracking moment for you? <laughs> it was. I believe in being as honest and straightforward as possible. If any of them ever asked me about my ethnic or you know religious background, I would have told them. But the individuals in the film, if you see the film, are, are pretty narcissistic and self-absorbed. So they weren't asking me a whole lot of questions about myself. My last name also sounds Italian. So if my last name was Goldstein or something, maybe it would have <laughs> been an issue earlier. Anyway, a year into reporting, Richard Spencer was giving a speech at the University of Florida. He was in a ridiculous disguise because he just got punched in the face two months earlier. So I meet him at the airport. He's wearing like purple sunglasses and a big hat. We squeeze into a two-door sedan. So it's me, Richard, a really nervous young driver, and Evan McLaren. He was kind of like the clan lawyer. He was Richard's lawyer. The driver kept making wrong turns. So a two-hour drive became a four-hour drive. And we just had to kill time and make conversation we were talking about random things like Richard's taste in music. He loves Depeche Mode and many others. Then eventually we ran out of stuff and he turns to me and says, so Daniel, you're Lombroso. Like, that's really cool. Like, he said to me many times, your, your Italian ancestry is cool. Tell me more about your you know, Italian background. And I was stuck. I had two hours left in the car and it was getting to be nighttime in Florida. So I, I knew it was my moment. I said, Richard, you know, actually uh, I'm Jewish. My dad is from Israel. The quote was, big Jew, you got in the car. That's what I said to him, trying to diffuse it with a little humor. You know, he went to prep school. He's a highly, highly educated guy. Obviously, he's met Jews before, but I think he thought we had like a special rapport. I was his little Italian reporter friend, and he was taken aback. The driver, who was, you know, from a less well-off background, was really scared. And eventually, we ended up at a ranch in central Florida. And, you know, Richard moved on. I don't think it affected our relationship much. But I heard the driver then go to tell his friends, pardon my language, but be careful, there's a kike reporter, we have to be careful, don't say anything bad. 
there's an Israeli Jew. And many of them started throwing Nazi salutes in my direction and things like that. So it's a very common dynamic that you see in the alt-right. The, the leaders are very press savvy. They understand that saying hey kike to a reporter is not a good thing for press but many of their underlings even one level below are much less savvy and the behavior of the driver is something that i encountered again and again and again across the reporting process mm. what about cernovich and southern do they have a problem with you being jewish at all southern uses a lot of dog whistle anti-semitism potentially without understanding what it means i think she does know and just doesn't care she thinks it's funny she thinks it's larping i mean that's a term that is in the zeitgeist now because of all of the people who stormed the capitol building who were dressed in these silly outfits so lauren would use a lot of dog whistles talking about the rothschilds talking about the globalists talking about zog meaning the zionist occupied government not having to do anything with zionism but implying that the U.S. was occupied by Jews. So she uses that terminology. I would try to educate her unsuccessfully, I think, about, you know, my own family's history and and why those views were problematic. I don't know that it cut through. You know, the film does a good job, I think, of showing the spectrum of views, not to pardon some, you know, so-called more moderate ones. But Cernovich is what you would call alt-light. He really is, he's careful not to, probably for branding and marketing reasons, not attach himself to the most hardcore elements. Because of that, Cernovich actually has a lot of right-wing Jewish support. And when you're in Mike's world, you actually see that a lot of people who are very, very pro-Israel, like, you know, people who are like Likud or even to the right, or are big Cernovich fans or even Cernovich donors. So it, it's actually <laughs> shocking in its own way how Jewish Cernovich's world is. And that's kind of its own weird thing that I was trying to make sense of over time. How, uh, you know, the Israeli right or the Israeli far right has attached itself to the Trump right. And that's something you see very clearly at Cernovich events where you might see an Israeli flag. There are some Orthodox Jews who come, you know, people who are very pro-Israel, but also see an opportunity with President Trump. Were you ever afraid for your life? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, there were a lot of close calls, not like, you know, gun to the head moments, for lack of a better way to put it, but just like never ending trolling, tons of hate mail, Someone, when the film was released at AFI Docs, someone made a video about how my grandmother is a fake Holocaust survivor. Actually, she lost her entire family except for one brother. You know, a lot of just like really immature, I guess would be the right word, behavior from the subjects dealing with the, the fallout from the film. You know, being unable to see that this is actually who they are and the film was fair to them. I think a lot of them were unwilling to see that. So, you know, there were never death threats per se, but just never ending like really, really deep anti-Semitic trolling. And it's something I continue to live with and compartmentalize, and it's fine. To some extent, I see it as a badge of honor that the film broke through. You mentioned your grandmother. You are the grandson of Holocaust survivors. I presume that is the history that you shared with Lauren Southern. Did the stories you heard growing up resonate during this reporting process? Did it help you process some of those stories, and did some of it seem familiar, ring familiar? Absolutely. I'm very careful not to fearmonger. I I don't like when Everything becomes 1939. But my understanding, talking to both my grandmothers, one who lived in hiding across Poland under a Polish Catholic name, she lost her sister. Her sister was killed by the Nazis. And my father's mother, who is from Nuremberg, she fled on the kind of transport, lost her entire family except for one brother. From both those stories, you know, I really took away an understanding that you have to bear witness to history. You have to, you have to shine a light when evil festers. And of course, the Nazis didn't just take over in 1939. And proceed to exterminate, you know, two-thirds of Europe's Jews over the next six years. It was a very slow process of people, you know, either joining hands with them or much more likely being apathetic to what they were doing. 
you know, Nazism first rose in the 20s and then Hitler was elected in 33. And then eventually, you know, the war started six years later. All of these things are a slow process. And what happens is you become so used to far-right rhetoric, far-right ideas, and really, you know, violent ideas that they become embedded in everyday life that they don't affect you anymore. And I think the film has been described as shocking and absurd and provocative. And IndieWire called it the scariest documentary, of the, the scariest film of the year, I believe. And that's the point. I mean, the point is to be a wake-up call and say, look what's sitting in front of us. Look how pervasive this stuff is everywhere, especially in liberal enclaves like New York, where I live, and DC, where I used to live. And my lesson for my grandparents is that we have to pay attention to this. We have to talk about it. There's a part of, you know, the press that thinks that these things shouldn't be covered or should be covered in certain ways. And my view and Jeff Goldberg's view at The Atlantic is that we really have to shine a light. As many people have to be aware as possible because the conservative movement has been taken over by white nationalists. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. Other forms of racism are on the rise. And we have to see if we're going to stop it in the end. Mm -hmm. Do we know where Spencer was last Wednesday? Was he in his parents' basement in Montana, presumably, or was he in D.C.? None of the subjects in my film were in D.C. A few of them are openly mocking it, not because they disagree with the sentiment, just because they feel like it doesn't further the aims of the movement. I mean, optically speaking, it was just a a shit show, for lack of a better word, for the Trump movement and for Trumpism. And if, like I said, if you're a savvy political operator, storming the Capitol in a bear costume is not really the best way to do it. Cernovich was at home in Orange County. Richard is now living with his mother. He doesn't have any source of income. He raises a little bit of money on live streams, but he was presumably at her house or definitely in Montana. And Lauren Southern, who's probably the most interesting in the film, has since receded to Australia, where she's living with her non-white partner, She's now a contributor on Sky News. She's pushing a lot of far-right views, like that the election was stolen, that masking is a conspiracy. She's pushing anti-vaxxing things, but she also was not in D.C. All of them have basically become commentators from afar at this point. What did you see when you were watching the images of that Capitol riot? Were you seeing the endurance of that movement that you were covering? Absolutely. So in my view, what happened on Wednesday was an inevitable consequence of everything that I've been witnessing for four years. So four years ago, a week after Donald Trump was elected, Richard Spencer said, hail Trump, hail our people, hail victory. He said, for us as white people, it is, quote, conquer or die. And I think when you have that rhetoric growing and growing and growing on social media, in the mainstream of the Republican Party, on Fox News every night, on people like Tucker Carlson, who's become the highest rated person on cable TV, an inevitable consequence of years of violent rhetoric is something like Wednesday or potentially something even beyond Wednesday. I think, you know, the easiest way to think about it is a counterfactual. Would Wednesday have happened without the alt-right and without Trump? And unequivocally, the answer is no. The alt-right has been inciting violence for four years. President Trump said, you know, we will never concede. He called for people not to be weak. He called for them to march on the Capitol. He called the election illegitimate. If those two events didn't happen, there wasn't an angry, racist, anti-Semitic base, and there wasn't a president not accepting the election results, Wednesday wouldn't have happened. And, you know, it's easy to go back to the previous thing for the far rights leaders to recede now, you know, back under Iraq, the places that white nationalists are supposed to be or should be. But what they've unleashed is now a reality in American politics and even Western politics that we're going to be dealing with for a very long time. And looking at the fallout from the Capitol riots and what social media platforms are doing, isolating Parler, banning some of these white supremacists and conspiracy theorists from Twitter and Facebook, is it too little too late, in your opinion? 
It is. I'm careful as a reporter, you know, trying to capture history, but not prescribe history to say what should be included, what shouldn't be included. And I leave that to a lot of the great tech reporters on the beat, like Andrew Morantz or Kevin Roos with the New York Times and many others. What I will say is that these are private companies with very clear standards. You cannot incite violence. You can't incite an insurrection. And, you know, what we saw President Trump do on Wednesday and his minions like Rudy Giuliani calling for trial by combat is a very obvious and clear violation of those private companies' guidelines. You know, Steve Bannon earlier in the pandemic called for Anthony Fauci's head to be on a stake outside the White House. That got him banned from Twitter. I support those guidelines. And I think, I guess to put it in terms I'd be more comfortable with is that social media has turbocharged these ideas to a degree that I would have never expected. If you talk to historians or even white nationalists from the 80s and 90s, in the past, if you were interested in these ideas, you had to get a secret pamphlet in the mail or you would go meet some weirdos in a Walmart parking lot and it's 10 of you standing around. There's no way to exponentially increase the size of those people. You're sending mailers. Now, if you're just curious about these ideas, you click, you click, you click, and and it's right in front of you. The algorithm until recently or potentially still prioritizes the most extreme content possible. So the things that go viral are not moderate centrist takes, they're extreme left-wing takes, but especially extreme right-wing takes. And you see a lot of the most successful channels in the social media climate are people like Ben Shapiro, people like Dennis Prager, and at least until recently, people like obviously Donald Trump, but Milo Yiannopoulos was huge. Richard Spencer had a big following. Lauren Southern continues to have a big following. Mike Cernovich and Jack Posobiec, another prominent conspiracy theorist, get retweeted by the president all the time. There's a level of amplification that I don't know we've ever had before in American history. And to that issue, it's obviously too little too late. So what do you want people to take away from this conversation and from the film? I think it's two main things. One is that white nationalism And I guess what I would say more broadly is fears of demographic change, that this country is becoming too multicultural, is now in the mainstream of the Republican Party and the conservative movement. My dad is quite conservative. He voted for Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney does not represent the Republican Party anymore. The future of the party are the Josh Hawleys, the Trumpist iteration of Ted Cruz because he's had 15 lives, and, you know, Trump's kids who are just, you know, kind of a more crass version, especially Don Jr. of, of their father. You know, that populist impulse, this idea that this, at least the subtext being that this is a white man's country and needs to remain to be so, is now in the mainstream of that party. They have a decision to be made this week with impeachment and removal, whether at least at the leadership level, they'll make an effort to condemn and remove that cancer from the party. Either way, it's a large and I would say growing demographic that will continue to vote for these ideas, continue to pay money for these ideas. That's why you see so much fundraising and really grifterism on the far right, people who are making money off of it. So, and I think that would be one point. The other point being is that we do also, I think liberals and progressives have to reckon with the fact that this is a value system, that these are people who in a way who found a new religion. It's a secular religion. It's appealing to the heart. It's appealing to the passions. And one way to fight these people is to deplatform them. People say that that potentially works. I think a more effective way and something that should happen in parallel is telling a better story, is really trying to win these people back and talking about how beautiful multiculturalism can be, the promise of America, that this is an immigrant nation. If Richard Spencer is able to win you by telling this great story about the Greeks and the Romans, you know, certainly people on the left should be able to tell a better story about you know, Ellis Island and what it means to come to this country and to make it as an immigrant. So those are the things that I think about and, and take away from the film. 
Well, Daniel, thank you so much for spending the time with us and for making the film and for taking the risk that you did to make the film. I think it's a very important, important piece. It's called White Noise. It is streaming now. It is available on Amazon, on Apple TV. Any others that I should mention? Those are the two best. And if you're listening internationally, we're doing a festival tour overseas and it will be on different broadcasters soon in various countries. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. Yesterday, we released a special interview with Representative Richie Torres, but we wanted to re-air it in our regular episode today, just in case you missed it. And be sure to stick around afterwards for Shabbat Table Talk. Representative Richie Torres is a freshman member of Congress from New York's 15th Congressional District. He is proudly progressive and proudly pro-Israel, and we had hoped to have him on to talk about how important it is to make that progressive case for Israel. The riot at the Capitol changed our plans, unfortunately, and he joins us now to talk about what comes next. Representative Torres, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor for me to be here. Last Wednesday was extremely scary for all of us, but I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be in the Capitol for it. And we're also not entirely out of the woods yet with possible threats still brewing, I think. So let me start here and just ask this. How are you holding up? It has been the most draining and disorienting week of my life. If a year ago you had said that I would become a member of Congress during an infectious disease outbreak and that I would witness a violent insurrection against the U.S. Capitol during the electoral college vote count, and that I would then impeach Donald Trump not only once but twice, I would have said that has the feel of a movie. I'm still in a state of shock, and I'm, I'm in a state of shock that a sitting president would instigate a violent mob to storm the U.S. Capitol in an attempt to overturn the results of a presidential election. You are among the members of Congress calling for the House to impeach President Trump again, although I suppose this is your first time impeaching him. And that's a process that looks set to move forward this week. People are also talking about a resolution censuring him or demanding he resign or using the 25th or the 14th amendments to remove him from office. What would satisfy you here? What kind of action do you think that this moment calls for? Well, the best outcome is removal. And we've presented the vice president with an ultimatum. Either you invoke the 25th Amendment or else we have no choice but to move forward with impeachment. It is clear that the vice president refuses to invoke the 25th Amendment in conjunction with a majority of the cabinet. So we have no choice but to impeach Donald Trump. You know, the violent mob he unleashed on the U.S. Capitol represents an unprecedented assault on the separation of powers between the Congress and the president. It represents an unprecedented assault on the peaceful transfer of power from one president to the next. If striking at the core of our constitutional republic is not an impeachable offense, then what is impeachment for? We have no choice. Just moments before you and I connected, the New York Times reported that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is actually pleased with the impending impeachment. Do you think with McConnell's implicit blessing, there's actually a chance that the Senate might remove President Trump from office? So there are three outcomes, right? A House majority is required for impeachment. A Senate supermajority is required for conviction. And then once impeached and convicted, a Senate majority is required for disqualification. So the ultimate goal is not simply to remove Donald Trump from office, 
but to disqualify him from ever pursuing federal office again because he has shown himself to be a lethal threat to the republic. He's a clear and present danger to the constitutional republic. And what about aside from President Trump? Are there members of Congress, either with you in the House or in the Senate, who you think crossed the line in what took place last week? There were several enablers of Donald Trump in the United States Congress and elsewhere who spent months inflaming the disaffected supporters of Donald Trump. One example is Congressman Mo Brooks went to the march and instigated an armed and angry mob to, quote, take names and kick ass. He should be held accountable. We as elected officials have to be mindful of the words we use. What does it mean to be held accountable in this instance, though? What does that look like? Expulsion. That's what the conduct of, for me, the attempt to overturn the results of an election, the attempt to instigate a violent mob to take over the U.S. Capitol. If that is not grounds for expulsion, then I honestly don't know what is. These members of Congress and Donald Trump inspired a violent mob that led to the murder of a police officer who was bludgeoned to death by a fire extinguisher. Right? There are images of a rioter in the Senate chamber wearing tactical gear with plastic handcuffs as though he were planning to take hostages. Right? I'm convinced that there were rioters who were intent on apprehending and assassinating members of Congress, the majority leader, the speaker, and even the vice president. There's a video of rioters screaming, the vice president should be hanged. A noose and a gala were erected outside the Capitol. And the president was tweeting out against his own vice president in real time while the Capitol was under siege. He was pouring more gasoline on the fire of mob violence. He put not only Congress at risk, he put the life of his own vice president at risk. One of your fellow freshman members uh, also said something to the effect of when speaking to people who are concerned about the outcome of the election, uh, he said it's okay to threaten them a little, right? It's okay to, to threaten members of Congress a little. This was Madison Cawthorn from North Carolina. In addition to Representative Brooks, are there other people who you think, you know, their actions kind of rise to a certain level? There needs to be a comprehensive investigation to determine which members of Congress had a role in inciting an insurrection against the U.S. Congress, which is disqualifying, which should disqualify you from holding office. And it's worth pointing out that there was a deep strain, not only of racism, but anti-Semitism among the elements of the violent mob. If I recall correctly, one or several of the rioters had a shirt that read Camp Auschwitz. You had Confederate flags. You had symbols of racism and anti-Semitism and white supremacy pervading the violent mob that attempted to take over the Capitol. It should be cause for concern. And, you know, Trumpism is going to have more staying power than Trump. I worry that violent white nationalism, violent anti-Semitism and racism is going to be a fact of life that will continue to haunt us. You know, I think of politics as an alternative to violence. Politics is about the resolution of conflict by means other than violence. And if there is a set of the population that loses confidence in politics, that sees it as illegitimate, and Donald Trump has convinced them that it's illegitimate, then that segment is going to resort to violence. Right? The delegitimation of politics is an open invitation to violence. And I think the Jewish community in particular has the most at stake because history has taught us that paranoid conspiratorial politics is often a breeding ground for anti-Semitism. 
I don't know if we have the most at stake or among the most at stake, but certainly everything that we saw last week out of that riot was vile. But certainly the racism, the anti-Semitism, really terrible to our listeners who don't yet follow AJC.Global on Instagram. I would encourage you to check out the Instagram slider that our team put together detailing some of the anti-Semitism that the congressman talks about. I want to clarify what I meant by that. I think history tells us that conspiratorial politics is uniquely conducive to anti-Semitism. And point well taken. We've now heard of three Democratic members of Congress getting COVID, perhaps as a result of being shut up in a secured room during the riot with Republican members who refused to wear masks. What message do you think that those members send by rejecting public health requirements? Forget about the message. Those members are putting lives at risk, right? When you refuse to wear a mask, you are at higher risk of contracting or spreading the disease and spreading the disease to someone who could die from it. So you have to be mindful of the impact that your actions have on others. That's just a basic display of decency and empathy. And so I'm pleased to see that the speaker's taking action to hold members accountable for the failure to wear masks. We are going to begin the practice of finding members who enter the House floor without a mask and who put their colleagues in danger. And as someone who, who grew up in New Jersey, I mean, I live in New York now, but I grew up in New Jersey. Bonnie Watson Coleman, Representative Watson Coleman, has been a mainstay of the New Jersey congressional delegation for a long time now. She's 75 years old. She's a cancer survivor. And now she is battling COVID. And we send our best to her and to Representative Jayapal and Representative Schneider and hope that there aren't more infections to come out of that situation. Let me change gears a little bit here and, and ask you this. There are some areas where, even as a proud progressive, you might have been very well suited to partner with Republicans. You know, just earlier today, I checked in on your Twitter account and I saw that you were tweeting about how your constituents need better access to broadband internet. I imagine that there are some rural Republicans who might have been really good allies for you on an infrastructure project like that. And of course, there's your widely publicized and steadfast support for Israel, which is something that a lot of Republicans really feel deeply as well. Is it going to be harder for you now, after last week, after this week, for you to work across the aisle? Without question. And I can assure you that I was as open to anyone to cooperation across the aisle and coalition building. I have a rule, you know, never take politics personally. Never view your political adversaries as personal enemies. Strive to build relationships with them. Strive to build coalitions with anyone in the service of common causes. You know, that's who I am. But if you have members of Congress, Republican members of Congress, who are attempting to derail the certification of Joe Biden as president, who are inciting a violent mob to take over the Capitol and potentially murder their own colleagues, again, an officer was bludgeoned to death. That's unsettling to me. I cannot view those people in the same light. That to me is just so profoundly indecent, such a profound betrayal of the oath of office of their country that we cannot abide it. So I am heartbroken. But then there are Republicans for whom I have enormous respect. You know, Peter Meijer from Michigan, an immense amount of integrity and courage. You know, I emerged from this experience respecting him even more deeply than I did before. I appreciate the principled stand that Liz Cheney has taken. You know, we agree on almost nothing, but she took a principled stand in favor of certifying Joe Biden as the president of the United States. You know, keep in mind, there were Democrats like me who were outraged that George W. Bush and Donald Trump won the presidency without winning the popular vote. We were outraged by the undemocratic nature of the outcome. 
But none of us ever thought of storming the Capitol and assaulting members of Congress and terrorizing their staff. We understood that the Electoral College is the law of the land. And we accept the law of the land. That when the American people have spoken and when the people have spoken, we have to accept the outcome of the election. And what those Republicans have done in instigating a violent mob and delegitimizing our democracy is beyond the pale. And I'm in tears because it's heartbreaking to see what has become of our country. I know that time is short for you and you have votes to get to and lots of other demands on your time. Let me ask you one last question. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is calling for unity now, saying that impeachment would only divide the country. I think that there are a lot of people who view that as disingenuous at this moment in particular, and I'm interested what you think about that. But also, what about three or four months from now, right? What about when we're 100 days into President Biden's tenure, you've been in office for a few months, the Democrats control both houses of Congress. Would unity be a good thing then? Is unity possible then? And what might make it more possible? I want the country to be united, but the highest value in our constitutional republic is the rule of law. We are governed by laws and we're governed by the processes prescribed by those laws. We are not governed by the passions of a mob. And the highest value here is accountability. There has to be consequences for committing sedition against the United States Congress in an attempt to derail the peaceful transfer of power. If we do not have the peaceful transfer of power, if we do not have a separation of powers, then there's nothing left that we can claim is a democracy or a republic. The best hope for unity in the long run is, is Joe Biden. You know, he is as moderating and as unifying a force in American politics as you could hope for. But I'm pessimistic about the prospects for unity, not only because of the siege, but there are forces driving the radicalization of the political right in particular. Not only social media, not only Twitter, but you know, there's Fox News, there's talk radio, there's Donald Trump, there's demagogues in Congress, there's an ecosystem, a whole ecosystem of alternate media outlets that keep inflaming the disaffected supporters of Donald Trump and keep feeding them inflammatory lies and false claims of election fraud. And as long as that reality persists, it's hard to see a path to a unified America. It's hard to see the kind of unity that took hold in the wake of 9-11. Well, there's a great deal more that I would love to talk to you about. And I hope that we can have you back on at some point in a few months when things are a little bit more back to normal, if any of us can remember what normal even feels like, to talk about some of the really important issues that I know that you're excited to get to work on for your constituents and for the American people. But for now, let me just say, Representative Torres, congratulations again on your election, on being sworn in. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us on AJC's People of the Pod. I welcome the opportunities. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Holly Huffnagel, AJC's U.S. Director for Combating Antisemitism. Holly, when you're talking with your family this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Thank you, Sefi. This weekend, my husband and I will be talking about the anti-Semitism we saw during the insurrection at our nation's capital last week. I've heard it described that last week's seditious act was also a who's who of white supremacists and white nationalist groups. In addition to the Proud Boys and QAnon supporters, the insurrectionists included the National Socialist Club, NSC 131, the leader of the Groyper Army, and the New Jersey European Heritage Association, along with prominent Holocaust deniers, someone yielding a Nazi flag, another a Confederate flag, 
There was someone wearing a Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt and the back said staff. Thankfully, he was arrested in Virginia this week. But there was also someone wearing a white t-shirt bearing a red crusader cross. And this shirt would be the starting point for a conversation my husband and I will have about the long history of Christian anti-Judaism that sadly continues to be foundational to much of the anti-Semitism we see today, especially on the far right. My husband and I are both practicing Christians and to see someone wearing a shirt with a cross that symbolizes Christian wars against Jews and Muslims is abhorrent. The core of Christianity is for Christians to be disciples or students of Jesus. So we'd recall Jesus's life and his teachings. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek, he says. Jesus calls his followers to live as servants, to serve God and to serve others, to keep our conduct honorable, to respond in gentleness and respect and to suffer in this life. And, and so many of us have a weak view of suffering that somehow inconvenience equals persecution. Yet Christians are actually called to lay down our rights for others as the way we believe Jesus did for us. So my husband and I will deliberate over how we believe it's imperative for American Christians to practice these core beliefs, how we have a responsibility, how all of us have a responsibility to combat anti-Semitism. The onus should be on us, not the victim. And the last thing, we would talk about how our government is for and by the people, meaning it puts pressure on the people to live in a manner consistent with self-government, which is not what happened on January 6th. My husband often refers to the words of George Washington, who said that the goal of an election is not to secure power, to be used as a bludgeon. Rather, the goal of an election is to determine who will best steward this experiment in self-government for the next short while. And that is where we would end, on stewardship and responsibility. Thank you, Holly. At our Shabbat table, we will be talking about some of the adventures I had in the era I like to call my invincible 20s. My senior year in college in the mountains of North Carolina, when I worked for a local newspaper, I came across a few flyers for a Ku Klux Klan rally being planned across the border in Tennessee. A fellow reporter and I went to that rally. We posed as a married couple. We didn't use our real names, and as you might have guessed, I certainly didn't tell them I was Jewish. I haven't done anything nearly that dangerous or perhaps that dumb since— I remember two things vividly about that rally, the flaming cross in the clearing at the end of the meeting and the homemade chocolate chip cookies served out of a Tupperware container. I was thinking a lot about that assignment this week as I prepared for the conversation you heard earlier with filmmaker Daniel Lombroso, who happens to be in his invincible 20s. He's 27 now, but as you know, if you listen to the interview, he spent the last four years embedded with the leaders of the alt-right. Those four years led to the documentary White Noise, which was released at the end of last year and which I highly recommend. Unlike my assignment, Lombroso stuck with it for the long haul, earning the trust of his subjects by being honest and transparent about who he was. He's Jewish. He described some scary situations as a result of that. But here's the thing. Journalists put themselves in danger every day. It doesn't require going into the woods undercover at night or embedding with the enemy. The images and dispatches from Washington correspondents at the Capitol riots last week prove it. I teared up as I read first-person accounts from reporters, mothers who had left small children at home to cover a historic moment in our democracy, who were evacuated from the congressional chambers, then turned away from safe rooms by police, relying on the kindness of members of Congress who witnessed that hypocrisy and ushered them to their offices instead. But kindness isn't always sincere 
or rather it can be subjective. Which brings me to those chocolate chip cookies. Those KKK members weren't all wearing white hoods. They wore flannel plaid shirts and jeans. They were likable, generous, and welcomed the strangers. Obviously not in the biblical sense, not in the way God calls us to. Lombroso discovered the same contradiction. Richard Spencer, Lauren Southern, they were likable. Based on outward appearances and gestures of hospitality, they were just like you and me, ordinary human beings searching for a purpose and baking chocolate chip cookies for their guests. I don't have to go into the woods at night to find people with whom I fundamentally disagree. They're out of the darkness, which is why we have to find a way to engage with each other honestly and transparently and hold each other accountable if we're going to repair this country. I thank brave journalists like Daniel Lombroso and those reporters at the Capitol that day for showing us the way. And that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table this week. Sefi? Thanks, Holly. Thanks, Manya. As both of you allude to, it has been quite a week. The failure of American leadership is something that always makes me sad. So while the second impeachment of President Trump was absolutely necessary and unquestionably deserved, I still find it somewhat depressing. One bright spot for me this week came during a speech from Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi in the run-up to the impeachment vote. She said, quote, Especially during this sad time, I recall the words of the great Israeli poet Ehud Manor when he said, quote, I can't keep silent in light of how my country has changed her face. I won't quit trying to remind her. In her ears, I'll sing my cries until she opens her eyes. Ehud Manor is one of Israel's most celebrated lyricists, and that lyric comes from what is perhaps his most famous song, Ein Li Eretz Acheret. The song begins, Ein Li Eretz Acheret Gam Imad Moti Boeret, Rak Mila Beivrit Choderet El Orkai El Nishmati. Beguf koev, belev raev, kan hubeti. Or, in English, I have no other country. Even if my land is aflame, just a word in Hebrew pierces my veins and my soul. With a painful body, with a hungry heart, here is my home. Manor wrote those words in memory of his brother, who died during one of Israel's forgotten wars, the War of Attrition, which took place after the Six-Day War. In the song, I hear deep love and also deep dissatisfaction, and the two go hand in hand. It makes me think of the Constitution and what people read into those four words in the preamble, a more perfect union. Not a perfect union, a more perfect union. A union, a country, an American project, an American experiment that will, they prayed in 1789, asymptotically approach perfection, always striving bending toward the ideal, even if that is never quite within grasp. Our country has always faced challenges. We have our challenges today. We will surely have our challenges tomorrow. But as Manor wrote, even if my land is aflame, here is my home. I'll be thinking about that at my Shabbat table and maybe even singing along. Here's to better weeks ahead. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash people of the pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag people of the pod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.